this morning, uh, I've titled the message straight from the text, We Wish to See Jesus. We Wish to See Jesus. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering together as a body of Christ on the Lord's Day. This is your day, the Lord's Day, a day we set aside to worship you together in song, in prayer, and in the hearing and preaching of your word. And God, I pray that that as your word goes forth this morning, as we look at your word in John chapter 12, that, uh, you would, that you would speak to every heart, wherever any person is, wherever they are in their life, whatever situation they're facing, whatever they, wherever they are spiritually, I pray that this morning your word would do what it alone can do. And Lord, we will, we will submit to it. And Father, I ask that you would help me this morning to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's get our bearings back where we were. And I know many of you don't remember where we were in, in the book of John after six weeks of a, of a break, but we're in John chapter 12. We're looking at verses 20 through 26 this morning. And, and what has just happened is that we're, we're really just a few days before the crucifixion of Christ. When we get to chapter 13 of John, which will be in a few weeks, uh, we, will, we will be a few hours John chapter 13 begins a few hours away from the death, from the arrest, from the betrayal, the arrest, and the crucifixion of Christ. But right now, we're still a few days away, just a, a couple of days away in John chapter 12. And this is, this is after the triumphal entry. A few verses early in chapter 12 is the triumphal entry of Christ. And so what's happening in the ministry, in particular, what's happening right now in Jesus' life, is that the, the, the capstone miracle of his earthly ministry was the raising of Lazarus. He raised Lazarus from the dead who had been dead for four days. And so the, you could call it the pinnacle of the earthly ministry of Jesus when it comes to the crowds that followed him. And, 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 the, and, and the word about Jesus that was all over the place, the tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people that were clamoring to see Jesus, and it culminated in the triumphal entry, and it culminated with, with people shouting and, de- and declaring Hosanna in the highest and, and laying down palm branches. And so this is what's happening around Jesus, and it's the Feast of Passover, We're in the Feast of Passover. Jesus, we'll see as we get on later in in the Gospel of John, he's going to be crucified on the Feast of, during the Feast of Passover as the ultimate Passover lamb. And so this is the Feast of Passover, and there's hundreds of thousands of people that have migrated to Jerusalem for this feast. Jews from all over, and we'll see there's some Gentiles that also, God-fearing Gentiles that migrated as well to the Feast of Passover to worship the one true God. So this is the bearings. This is where we are, and we see the crowds are clamoring to see Jesus. They want to see Jesus, and they're, they're throwing down their palm branches. And the, the religious leaders of the Jews couldn't be polar, more polar opposite than the crowd. The crowd wants to see Jesus, but the religious leaders, they don't want to see Jesus alive. They want to see him dead. They hated Jesus, the Pharisees and the scribes. They wanted to see him dead. And, and in this text, we will, we will see on the heels of the uproar of the celebration of Jesus coming to the feast, coming to the Passover, on the heels of the triumphal entry, and on the heels of him cleansing the temple for a second time, 
you see some Gentiles, some Greeks, the text is going to say, they're interested in seeing Jesus. And so in these verses, these seven verses we're going to look at, we're going to see a group of Greeks, a group of Gentiles that they want to see Jesus. They want to see Jesus. So let's look at the text, John 12, starting in verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, playing the telephone game there. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, I, I, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls in the earth and dies, it, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So this is the text. This is what we're going to unpack. We wish to see Jesus. So in this text, we'll see the, 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 the basic idea of this, the, this section is that, is that the Christian life is a call to die to self and to follow Christ. That, that, that's, that's the main point of this text is that the Christian life is a call to die to self and to follow Christ. But as we break it down, as we dig into this, here, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see from this text that there are, are curious people who want to see Jesus. There's a group of people that are curious. They want to see Jesus. They're interested in having another conversation or having a conversation with Jesus. The curious want to see Jesus. Then we're going to, we'll, we'll see secondly that, that, that Jesus will often not be who people are looking for. People want to see Jesus, but when they get to find out who Jesus is and what he came to do and his message, he's, he's often not what people are looking for. And then lastly, we'll conclude this morning with the reason why people realize that Jesus is not who they're looking for. It's because the message of Christianity is always a call to die. Okay? So that's where we're going. So let's look at the first thing here from this text. The curious will often ask questions about Jesus. The curious will often ask questions about Jesus. Let's look back to the text, John 12. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip. These Greeks, these Gentiles came to Philip, who, were from Bethsaida, who was from Bethsaida, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. The curious will often ask questions about Jesus, will often want to know about Jesus. And, and so among those, that's interesting, take, take note that the text said, among those who went up to worship at the feast. So it wasn't just Jews who went up to worship at the feast. So who are these Greeks? Who are these Gentiles? Well, they, 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 they would be labeled what's called God-fearers. They were Gentiles. They were not Jews, but they, had, they were proselytes of Judaism. They had been converted to Judaism, and they believed in Yahweh, the one true God. They didn't believe in paganism. They didn't believe in a multiplicity of gods. They believed that there was one God. And so they came to the feast along with the Jews to worship Yahweh, to worship the one true God at the feast of Passover. And so these Greeks, these Gentiles, uh, they, they had turned away, as I said, from worshiping the pagan gods. They turned to worship God. But they, it's interesting when you compare them, they were completely opposite of the religious leaders of the Jews. So think about that. You have outsiders who are not a part of the group. They're not the chosen people of God. They're not Israel. They're not Jews. And they're coming. They've been converted to Judaism, but they're Gentiles. 
they're not Jews, and they're interested in seeing Jesus. Whereas the religious leaders, the ones who are worshiping God, the, 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 the one true God, they want nothing to do with Jesus. They want him crucified. They want him dead. They want his, his authority squashed. They, 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 they want to be done away with Jesus. So it's, it's such an, an amazing contrast. They were curious. They were curious. They wanted to see Jesus. Why? I think it's possible that they would have heard, not possible, but likely, that these Greeks, these Gentiles, they had heard about Jesus and his miracles. Uh, they, they, they certainly had heard about Lazarus. I mean, the, the noise that had spread all around Jerusalem on the heels of the resurrection of Lazarus would have been great. It would have been loud. That's why there was all these tens of thousands of people that, that, that clamored to get around Jesus when he came in on the, on the colt into Jerusalem. And so these Greeks, these Gentiles, certainly would have heard of the miracles of Jesus. I, I also think they were curious to get to talk to Jesus, to have a company with Jesus, because they had heard his teaching. The Bible says that Jesus taught like no one had ever taught. He had words, he spoke in a way that no one had ever spoken, and I believe that not only had they seen his miracles, but I believe perhaps they had heard his teaching, and they had been gripped in their heart by the words of Christ, and they wanted to have company with Jesus. They want to have a conversation with Jesus. The curious, these Greeks, the curious, will often want to see Jesus, ask questions about Jesus. You, you know, we really see that throughout the Gospels. One of the first ones I thought of that are very similar to these Greeks, to these Gentiles, was Nicodemus. Do you remember Nicodemus in John 3? We studied him a long time ago in John 3. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a religious leader of the Jews who ultimately did not hate Christ. He was curious about Jesus. Listen to what Nicodemus says. Listen to what it says about Nicodemus in John 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. He was a Pharisee. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Do you see it? Nicodemus is thinking. I, we don't know what was in the mind of these Greeks, of these, of these Gentile God-fearers. We don't know what they were thinking. We don't know what they were processing because the text doesn't tell us. They wanted to see Jesus, but we know what Nicodemus was thinking. What was Nicodemus thinking? He's thinking, how is it that this man is doing these miracles? My other Pharisee buddies, they're telling me that this Jesus is from hell and from Satan and that he does his miracles by the power of Satan. Nicodemus had a brain, and he thought there's no way that somebody can do what this man is doing if he's not from God. So Nicodemus said, I want to talk to Jesus. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps these Gentiles are thinking the same thing. What about the rich young ruler? Here's, a, here's another man that wanted to see Jesus. Mark 10, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. So this rich young ruler is another, maybe like Nicodemus, he had heard about Jesus, maybe he heard about the miracles, he heard his teaching, he comes to the rabbi, he says, good teacher, I want to know, how do I get to heaven? What about another one? You guys remember Zacchaeus, the wee little man that Zacchaeus was, wee little man, wee little man was he, climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to to see Zacchaeus, behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see Jesus, sir. We wish to see Jesus. We wish to see him, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. 
So, Nicodemus, the rich young ruler, Zacchaeus, God-fearing Greeks, all of them had questions about Jesus. All of them in some way, shape, or form wanted to see Jesus. They were attracted to his power, his words. Why? Why? Here's why I believe. I believe they're attracted to him, curious about him, because Jesus was and is the most compelling human being in history. Jesus is and was and forever will be the most compelling person in human history. Think about the impact of Christ today, over 2,000 years after the, 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 the death and the resurrection of Christ. We are in a building in Shriver, Louisiana, worshiping Jesus, I'm preaching about Jesus. He is the most compelling man that has ever lived. There's no presidential candidate that can sniff at his influence. No world leader that can ever come close to his power. This is Jesus. He's so compelling. This is why they want to see Jesus. Wouldn't you want to see Jesus? If you lived while he lived, the God-man, truly God and truly man, God become man, so compelling. Have you ever been around a compelling person? I know we've never been around Jesus in the flesh, but have you ever been around a compelling person? I'm going to tell you a little story. I was around a compelling person one day. This was earlier this month, and, and I'm not saying this. Uh, please hear my heart and what I'm saying here. I, some of you don't even know who this guy is, but he's a, he's a preacher that has a, a wide influence in, uh, in the church culture right now. His name is Alistair Begg. He's 72 years old. I went to his conference uh, in, in the early part of May this, this month called Basics, and Alistair Begg, I mean, like, we went and toured his Truth For Life radio online studios, and they told us that people download six million of his messages per month. Six million! I mean, he, he, he's Scottish, he has this wonderful accent, you know, and if I spoke with that accent, you guys would listen to my preaching a little bit longer. You'd give me at least 15 more minutes but he has such influence in Christianity, and, and so we're at his conference, and, and I have to tell you, I've been to lots of pastors' conferences. Something impacted me about that conference, and it wasn't, the messages were great, and I loved the messages, and the messages were, were pointed to the heart of a pastor and telling the pastor, persevere, don't quit, don't give up when your executive pastor leaves you, stay the course. <laughs> right? Be faithful to the gospel. Preach the word of God. Right? Those are all great messages, and I needed to hear all of them. But you know what touched me the most was Alistair Begg. I've been to other conferences. I've been to pastors' conferences, and you can't get anywhere near the preachers. But Alistair Begg, his, his humility was obvious. His approachability was obvious. And I had no VIP treatment to get to Alistair Begg. I waited in line like everyone else did. He let people wait in line to come and take a picture with him. So I took a picture with Alistair, and I, I talked to him about golf, of all the things to talk about to a, a hero in the faith. I talked to him about golf and uh, didn't tell him I thanked him for his ministry. I didn't do any of that. I just talked to him about golf and took a picture with him. But what touched me was his humility and his gentleness, and it really impacted my life. And I, as I left that conference, I said, God, I don't have the Scottish accent like Alistair Begg. 
I may not be as compelling of a preacher as he is, but God, make me humble like him. I could tell his, the people that were under him loved him, supported him, cared for him. I could tell that the people that were in the crowd, they, wanted to, they, they were listening. It wasn't because he was a powerful preacher, but you could tell there was a humility and a care. I said, God, make me like that. Now, humility of Alistair Begg. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be around humility perfectly personified in Jesus? Think about that. Alistair Begg has pride. We just didn't get to see it that week, right? I'm sure he's rude to his wife from time to time. I'm sure he's rude to his staff from time to time. I'm sure he's not the greatest leader from time to time. But can you imagine, even, even in that sinful, frail body that he has, Alistair can walk in humility, but can you imagine humility perfectly personified in Christ? How compelling Jesus is. And I want you to know that the world around us, they need Christ. They need Christ. They need to see Christ in us. And what's interesting about this text, what's interesting about these seven verses is that these Gentile God-fearers, we don't know the reasons why they wanted to see Jesus, but you know what they did? They went and found a disciple of Jesus and they said, can you take us to Jesus? They wanted to see Jesus. So, so with that in mind, I have a couple of questions for us. Something that just, I think this is for all of us. Let's think about this. Do non-believers around us know that we follow Christ? On our job, when we're in public, when we're driving, do people know that we follow Christ? The Greeks knew, these Gentiles knew that they could go to Philip to get to Jesus. What about this? Is Jesus reflected in our lives through Christ-like humility? Do people feel comfortable to ask us questions about Jesus? You know, so I think sometimes, if we're not careful, we can, we can be so theologically astute that, that people feel like they can't really approach us with questions about Jesus. May, may, we never, may we never complicate the gospel so much that people don't want to approach us about Jesus. Right? The curious will often ask questions about Jesus. And may we be like Philip. May we be like Philip. Be ready to bring them to Jesus. May people, may our life betray the fact that we're a disciple of Jesus, and that when the world looks at us, when Gentiles who are not believers, who are only worshiping Yahweh, have not come to worship the one true God in Christ yet, may they, may they know that they can come to us and feel comfortable to ask us questions to say, hey, bring us to Jesus. So the curious is the first thing we see from this text. We'll often ask questions about Jesus. Secondly, as we move on, Jesus is often not who people are looking for. Look at, look at John 12, 22. Go back to the text. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. As I said, they played the telephone game. The Greeks come to Philip and they say, hey, we know, in essence, you're a disciple of Jesus. We know, and, and, and the Gentiles would have not been allowed into the inner courts of the tabernacle. And so they were in, probably in the court of the Gentiles and they saw Philip and they said, oh, we recognize you. Hey, can you bring us to Jesus? Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And, and, and Philip goes to, goes to Andrew. Why, why didn't Philip go straight to, to Jesus, right? 
Why do you have to go to Andrew? I don't really know. The text doesn't really tell us. Maybe it's perhaps, do you remember Jesus said, I am sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? So maybe Philip's thinking, oh, well, these aren't Jews. I don't know if I should do this. Maybe perhaps that's what's going on in Philip's mind. But he goes to Andrew. So why talk to Andrew? Again, the text doesn't tell us, but perhaps the reason Philip, maybe he hesitated because he's like, this person's a Gentile. I don't know if Gentiles are included in this thing, in, in the kingdom. But let me go talk to Andrew. Maybe, maybe this is why he went to Andrew. Do you remember in John 1? Listen to John 1, 40 through 42. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. Andrew became a follower of Jesus, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Andrew was an evangelist, and so maybe he thought, hey, maybe Andrew's going to know what to do. Let's go talk to Andrew. So he talks to Andrew, and then they get to Jesus. Whatever the reasons, however the message got to Jesus, Jesus gets the message. These Greeks want to see you. They, They wish to talk to you. And Jesus answered. And Jesus, as is typical for Jesus, he doesn't answer the way that people think he should answer, right? Jesus, Jesus didn't stick to the script. Look, at, look, at, look back at the text, John 12, 23 through 24. So Philip says, Andrew, these Gentiles want to see Jesus. They go together, Jesus, they want to see you. Jesus answers them. Who does he answer? Some commentators say that he's answering the Gentiles. Some say it's just Philip and Andrew. I, I lean towards Philip and Andrew here. I don't think he's talking to the Gentiles here because we don't see that they got to them. We don't see that they're having a conversation. Jesus answered them. I think it's Andrew and Philip. What's his answer to the message that these God-fearing Gentiles want to see him? He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What an answer. Jesus, these Gentiles want to talk to you. They're interested in you. The time has come for me to be glorified. If a grain of wheat falls in the ground and, 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 and it dies, it remains alone. But if it, if it does die, it, it will bear much fruit. Jesus gets into this agricultural example. That's not the answer that I would imagine the disciples were thinking Jesus was going to give. But he gives this example. He, he, he begins to shift the focus. These Gentiles want to see him. What is Jesus saying? He's saying the time has come for me to be glorified. What is he talking about? He's talking about Isaiah 53, what Pastor Shane Scott read during the scripture reading. That's what he's talking about. He's saying the time has come for me to bear the sins of humanity. The time has come for me to be a substitute. That's what he's saying. He's shifting the focus. Yes, I'm glad the Gentiles are here to see me, but it's time. It's time for me to be glorified. It's time for me to do what God has called me to do. Jesus came specifically to die, to be the substitute or a scapegoat for sin. And Jesus gives this agriculture example. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls and dies and goes into the earth, it will not bear fruit. But if a seed goes into the earth, this is the picture, and it's buried, it dies, it will bring forth fruit. It will blossom. And this is speaking, Jesus is using that as an example to speak about his death, his burial, and his resurrection, which will produce much fruit. You guys tracking with that? Jesus was speaking about his death. One commentator says it like this, anyone who thinks that Jesus came to offer the kingdom to Israel 
without the cross and thinks the cross was only a reaction because of Israel's unbelief is a fool. Jesus came to offer the kingdom through the cross. The kingdom, entrance into the kingdom comes through death. It comes through the cross. And Jesus lived on mission during his three and a half years of ministry. From the very start, do you remember his first miracle in John when we first studied the first miracle of Jesus? Turning of water into wine. His mother comes up to him and says, hey, they ran out of wine at this wedding party. What are you going to do about it? He said, woman, my time's not yet come. You see, from the very beginning of his earthly ministry, he has an internal clock. He knows he is walking according to the timetable of his father, and he is thinking about the cross. He is moving towards the cross with every message, with every miracle, with every interaction. He is moving with his, with, with, with his eyes and his heart set like flint towards the cross to become the substitute for sin. The substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for sinners is the center of what Christianity revolves around. I'm going to say that again. The substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for sinners is the center of what Christianity revolves around. People want to make Jesus about many other things. They want to make Jesus about many other things. But Jesus came to die for sinners. We read it earlier. Look at it again, Isaiah 53. Surely he's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. We estranged him stricken, smitten by God, but he was pierced for our, our transgressions. He was crushed for our substitution, took our place. I deserved something because of my transgressions. I deserved death for my transgressions, death for my iniquities, but he was pierced and crushed for them, for me. And upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. His wounds we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Listen, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 1 Peter 2.24 puts it like this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Amen? Christianity is not a message of self-improvement. It's not a message of self-improvement. And Jesus didn't come just to help us cope with our earthly problems. That's not why he came. The Gentiles are saying, hey, hey, I don't know. I don't know what their motives were. Maybe they wanted, you remember the disciples? They wanted to know who was going to be on the right and who was going to be on the left. They wanted to know who was going to be in power in, in Jesus' earthly kingdom. Maybe these Greeks saw a way into the kingdom and into power. And maybe, maybe, and maybe, Je and this is why, maybe that's why Jesus said, oh, wait a minute. It's time for me to be glorified. It's time for the, for the seed to go into the ground so much fruit can come up. Jesus had his heart set on the reality of his mission. And Christianity should never be turned upside down to be a message about anything else but the cross of Christ for sinners. That's why he came. That's why he died. The message of the church is not, I should say should not be, come to Jesus and he'll make your temporary life better. I'm going to say something that's going to challenge you a little bit, but I just want you to think with me for a second. The kingdom of God is not built by the 
kindness of Jesus, his miracles, or his compassion. The kingdom of God does not grow by the kindness of Jesus, his miracles, or his compassion. How do I know that? Jesus spent three and a half years being kind, doing miracles, and being filled with compassion. And what did they do to him? They killed him. Tens of thousands of people into the hundreds of thousands possibly followed him all around Judea and Israel, all around the region because he was kind, because he did miracles, and because he was compassionate and he fed them. And in the end, there was a handful of people that were left. In the upper room, there was 120. How's the kingdom of God built? Through death. Through the cross. Through the cross. The world today, yes, they want to know about a kind Jesus. They want a gospel of the kindness of Jesus. They want a gospel of the compassion of Jesus. They want a gospel of the miracles of Jesus. But the gospel, the kingdom of, of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is, is built. The people are added to the kingdom through the cross of Christ because he came to die for sinners. He didn't come just to be kind to people, compassionate to people, and to heal them. He came to save them from the penalty of sin, which is death. Amen? The message, in short, of Christianity is substitution. That's, that's our message. Jesus dying for sinners. But you know what's beautiful about this message? Is that the point of the cross is not condemnation, but salvation. That's the point of the cross. It's not condemnation. The point of the cross is not condemnation. The point of the cross is salvation. Look at what 1 Timothy 1.15 says. The apostle Paul says of himself, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full, accept, full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Why did he come? To save sinners. And what does Paul say? Of whom I am the foremost. Or some translations say, of whom I am the chief. Jesus came to save the chief of sinners, which is me, which is you, which is everyone outside of Christ. So we are sinners who need a Savior because our sin demands a payment. And Jesus, who was perfectly innocent, paid the price for our sin debt, and now, through faith, we can stand forgiven. Through faith, we can stand forgiven. Jesus came to save. He didn't come to condemn. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. For Jesus, for God, did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't send his Son to condemn him because he could have. He could have said, we're done. My Son's coming as he will come as we see in the end times. He will come to condemn all of those who have not by faith, believed in his work. He could have come the first time to condemn, but he came to save. Jesus came to save. He came to forgive all who will come to him. It's that simple. It's not more complicated than that. And may we never change that message. May we never change it. So my question for you today is, is do you believe that today? Will, will, you, if, will you believe that today? Will you believe that? Is the message of the cross, as Scripture says, a stumbling block for you today? You mean, I'm a sinner? 
Why is, it, why is the message of the cross a stumbling block? This is why people want a message about the kindness, compassion, and miracles of Jesus, because that doesn't tell them they're a sinner. Great, Jesus can do, me, do a miracle for me. Great, Jesus is nice and compassionate, and he can feed me. That's great. But when you tell the sinner that he's a sinner, it's a stumbling block. But that's why Jesus came. 1 Timothy 1.15, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so will you believe that today? If you've not confessed Christ as your Savior today, will you believe what Scripture says about you? Ephesians chapter 2, for we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, and we were by nature children of wrath. Will you believe that about yourself, what Scripture says, that that, that all of your good works are filthy rags, that you were born in sin with a sinful nature, and that apart from the substitutionary work of Christ on the cross for your sins, you have no hope for eternity? Will you believe that today? If you believe that today, you can be born again. You can be born again. So, curious. I don't know what the Gentiles are curious about. I don't know why they wanted to see Jesus. But there will be people in our lives that are going to ask questions about Jesus because our life and our testimony will betray, hey, that's a follower of Jesus. And may we be ready like Philip. We may hesitate a little bit. We may say, hey, Pastor Ben, I need some help. Help me to bring him to Jesus. And that's fine. We can help you. Maybe you'll get another brother or sister in Christ to help you and and you'll work together to bring them to Jesus. The curious will often ask questions. Jesus is often not who people are looking for. Why? Why is he often not what people are looking for? Why? Well, third point, because the message is always a call to die. That's why. Look back to the text, John 12. Jesus now shifts. First he says, hey, I'm here to die. It's time for me to be glorified. I've got to go in the ground. I've got to be buried so I can be raised, so people can be born into the kingdom. And then he shifts. And it gets to the heart of the message of Jesus Christ, which is this, it's a message of a call to die. Look at the text. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So what's Jesus doing here? Now he's shifting from what he has to do to what they have to do to what they have to do. He's drilling down to the core of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Again, we don't know what the Greek God-fearers are wanting to talk to Jesus about, but you know what I know? Do you know who I know knew what they wanted to talk about? Jesus. Jesus knew. You know there's nothing Jesus said that was by accident to anybody. It wasn't like, you know how sometimes we can say things and we're like, oh, I didn't mean to say that. Oh, that was an accident. Oh, I wish I wouldn't have said that. We talked about that in the Psalm series. God's omniscience, he's perfect. he has perfect knowledge. Look, look at what John chapter 2 says. This is, we studied this a while back. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Right? So these Greek God-fearers come up to Jesus and, 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 and to, to, to the disciples and disciples go to Jesus. He, he didn't need to know what was inside of those God-fearers if they're next to him or if it's just Philip and Andrew, he knew what they needed to hear. Jesus' answer or response to the news of the curious Gentiles was not random. His response was based upon his perfect knowledge of their motives and what they needed to hear. Don't we see that throughout Scripture in, in his conversations? You remember Nicodemus earlier? Nicodemus came to Jesus at night 
you're doing all these miracles. Certainly you must be from God. What did Jesus know Nicodemus needed to hear? He's, it's kind of like the grain in the wheat falling in the ground parable. Jesus says, Nicodemus, you got to be born again. That's his answer to Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes and says, you got to be from God. Jesus says, you got to be born again. He had never heard that term. Nicodemus says, what? Born again? i got to go back to my mother's womb? And what are you talking about? And then he gets even more mysterious. Jesus says, look at the wind. You see the wind? It blows here and it blows there. You don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone that's born of the Spirit. Jesus was, he was confusing at times, wasn't he? But he knew what Nicodemus needed to hear. What about the rich young ruler? Came to Jesus, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What did that man need to hear? Jesus said, you lack one thing. Go and sell all, then come follow me. Jesus knew that he was not going to give up all to follow him. He had a lot of money. What did Jesus say about rich people? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. What about Zacchaeus? What did he tell Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus, climbs up into, climbs up into the sycamore tree to see Jesus. What did, what did Jesus knew, know that Zacchaeus needed to hear? Oh, this is so good. Listen, Jesus looks at Zacchaeus. Hurry, come down, sinful tax collector who your community hates you. Come down for today I must stay in your house. You guys getting that for a second? That's profound. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He was the worst of the worst of sinners. He needed to hear from Jesus, I'm coming to your house to eat with you. What was Jesus' reputation? He said, they said he's a sinner. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. Isn't that good? It's who our God is. And the same is true for us today. Jesus knows us. He knows our heart, our motives. He knows what we need most. And Jesus, in this moment, in this time, he spoke to the reality of his death, to the cross, and now he moves to what their response should be. This is what the response to the death of Christ should be. Look at, back at verse 25. Here's the response. Here's what we needed to hear. Here's what they needed to hear. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If you love your life, this life, you lose it. If you hate this life, You'll keep it for eternity. So what is Jesus saying here? This could be interesting. Is he calling for self-hatred? I don't believe so. I don't think he's calling us to hate my life, to hate myself, or for you to hate yourself. That's not what he's saying. What is Jesus calling for? Jesus is calling for the opposite of self-love. That's what he's calling for. He's not calling for self-hatred. He's calling for the opposite of self-love. You cannot love yourself as supreme and number one and love Christ at the same time. That's what he's saying. He's saying, he's saying, he's saying, you have to be opposite of what the world's gonna tell you to be, which is all about you. I watched this video a couple of days ago in preparation for this message. This is not an exaggeration. Maybe you heard it, but there was a self-love wedding that took place. A self-love wedding. Single people got together for a self-love wedding, and they married themselves. That's true. <laughs> I don't encourage you to look up the video. I already put it in your minds. You're probably going to Google it later. 
I'm just looking at this, and I'm like, this is the pinnacle of our, this is the pinnacle example of the depravity of our society. This is what Jesus is saying. If you're going to follow me, you can't love yourself supremely. Self-love wedding? You serious? We live in a society that promotes self-love above all else. And Jesus is calling his disciples to die to themselves, to follow him in death. Not a physical one. What does the book of Hebrews say? The book of Hebrews says that his death was a once-for-all sacrifice for sins. We don't have to die for our own sins. He died for our sins. But it's a, it's a self. It's a death of ourself. It's a full surrender to him. Look at Matthew 16. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, follow me, be a disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. This is what Jesus is saying here in in our text. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? You want to marry yourself? Go for it. But you're going to lose your soul. You're going to lose your soul. You want to worship yourself? You want to create your own God in your own image and worship yourself? Fine, you can do that, but you will lose your soul in eternity in hell. It's your decision, right? This is what Jesus, in essence, is saying. If you're going to follow me, you have to lose yourself. Die to yourself. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So, Christian life has always been a call to die, to die to ourselves, to surrender to Christ, to not cling to the things of this present life, to call to have our affections submitted to the Lordship of Christ. You know, there, there are many who believe that they can be a Christian and not live an increasingly sanctified life or an increasingly holy life. There are many people who think, well, I, you know, I can be a Christian and, and not increasingly become holy or sanctified or more like Christ. That's an oxymoron. They don't go together. We lose our life. We become like Christ and more and more like him every day. The Christian life is a surrender, a submission to Christ. It's a submission to Christ. Are you submitted to Christ? Will you submit to Christ? Will you submit to him? For some people, submission is a curse word. Submission, submit to Christ. There was a husband and a wife who went to a marriage conference one day. The preacher gets up, starts talking about submission in marriage, and he doesn't preach it biblically and correctly, and he starts saying the wife has to be submitted to the husband, which is biblical, but then he took it out of bounds. He starts saying that the man gets to make the rules, and, and, and the husband's kind of sitting in his seat looking at his wife, and he's like, that's pretty good. I get to make the rules. And he's saying the husband gets to make the rules. It's his way or the highway, and the guy's like, I can, man, I wasn't sure about Christianity, but now, man, I am all in. And, it's just, and this guy's painting this chauvinistic, domineering picture of, of male leadership in marriage. And so they get in their car, and they get home, and the husband looks at his wife when he gets home and says, you know what, from here on out, that's how it's going to be. It's my way or the highway. I make the rules here. I'm in charge. The man didn't see his wife for two weeks. And in two weeks, he could see her a little bit out of one eye. (laughs) See her a little bit out of one eye. Is that 
Is that the type of submission that God has called us to when we submit to Christ? Surrender to Christ, submission to Christ, losing our life and loving him more than the things of this world is not like a submission to a power-hungry tyrant in a marriage. Oh, it's not, but rather it is a submission. Listen, this is so good, this is so good. It is submission to a king who laid down his life for us first. We simply follow his example. Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. When we submit to Christ, we have the mind of Christ who submitted to the Father's will. And what did Christ do? He emptied himself, he humbled himself, and he became obedient. And that's the call to lose your life. We empty ourselves of our way and our desires. We humble ourselves at the foot of the cross and we say, not my way, but your way. And we obey Christ. We follow Christ's example. Amen. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. These Gentiles, I don't know what they were all about. We never really know. The curious will often ask questions about Jesus. Sir, we want to see him. And there'll be people in your life that they want to know. They look at your life and they, they want to know. May we tell them it's about, it's about death. May we tell them that Jesus is often not who you're looking for. He may not be who you're looking for. If I tell you, if I tell you the whole message, if I tell you the whole message, you may not like it. If I tell you that you're a sinner deserving of eternal death, you may not want to listen, but may we tell it. Because the message is always a call to die. Because when we die to ourselves, that's where true resurrection comes. That's where we can be born again. That's where, that's where when we thought that our world could, could not get any worse, or maybe we thought it couldn't get any better, when we die to ourselves and we surrender to Christ, that's when we can truly begin to live. So what about us today? How will we see Jesus and what will our response be? I think that's kind of the, the way we're going to end today as we conclude. I, I thought about this quote that I've used this before in, in a message, but I thought it was really good. George Mueller was a renowned missionary and evangelist from 1805 to 1898. And he had great impact through starting over 100 orphanages in his lifetime and ministering to thousands of, or, of orphans. And he was a great prayer warrior. He was known for his prayer life. And someone asked him one day, George, what has been the secret of your life and impact? What's been the secret, George, of all this impact that you've had? George answered, there was a day when I died. I died to George Mueller. I died to his opinions, preferences, taste, and will. I died to the world, its approval or condemnation. I even died to the approval or blame of brothers or friends. I died, George Mueller and that's the call. What's our response to be? It's to be, Lord, help me to die today. Maybe some of you need to die for the first time in salvation to Christ and surrender to Christ. And as believers in Jesus Christ, may we die daily. It's, it's, it's this picture of, of a crucifixion and a coronation. Love, this is, I'm stealing this from, from Brother Tim. He says this all the time. He says, a Christian life every day is a crucifixion. Die to myself, and it's a coronation crowning Christ as king. Every day, may that be true of ourselves. So, Here's how we're going to conclude. The call to die. The call is to who? Who's, who's the call to? Look back. I want you to see something else in the last two verses. So important. Look back to verse 25 and 26. 
whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Did you hear it? You heard my emphasis? Whoever, whoever, Jesus said twice, whoever. You know what's so powerful about the whoever and the if anyone? This is a shift. This is a pivot. Jesus is beginning to pivot to the day of Pentecost. He's beginning to pivot to the dream of Peter and the vision of the inclusion of the Gentiles into the kingdom. Do you see the pivot? He's pivoting right here. The gospel is shifting right here. It's not just a message to the Jews. It's a message to the world. And it's a message to anyone. If anyone would believe, if anyone would confess, if anyone would hate his life, whoever, anyone, wherever, if you would believe, you can be born again. So how many anyones we got here today? How many whoever's do we have? Be all of us, right? Amen. It's whoever. Whoever.